It's, uh, it's interesting as we finish up our James series today, we'll be in James chapter 5 if you'd like to find that, this notion that, um, that our Christian faith is not just a private matter and not just a, a church matter, we, we kind of see that bubble to the top here as James pens his closing uh, words of the letter that he's written. You remember he'd written this to Christians who had scattered from Jerusalem and uh, were now kind of scattered by persecution throughout the, uh, the area. And uh, as we've read through James, we've seen pastoral concern. Uh, we've seen brotherly cautions. We've also seen a, a more stern fatherly approach in the middle of the letter where, uh, where he kind of set, set kindness aside for a minute and in love was very direct with some things. And here as we end the letter in chapter 5, at the end of chapter 5, uh, we're going to see that James returns to a very brotherly approach again and speaks to us about not only our personal walk with the Lord, um, but how to do it as a congregation. Here's what one theologian writes about the verses we're going to read today. He says, James brings his letter to a close by presenting a picture of authentic, wholehearted faithfulness. He speaks here of attitudes and actions that characterize the genuinely faithful Christian community. What we find described here is all too rare in an images-everything world. The type of community pictured here is scarce, even among the thousands of Christian churches that dot the landscape of much of North America. So as we read today, what I'd like to encourage us or invite us to do is, is to listen to the Spirit's voice and, and listen it through, through a mindset, through a heart that says, Holy Spirit, would you, would you speak to me? Would you help me to know what you want to do in me and what you want to do in us? And would you even begin your revival work now? Would you help me to know what I can do so that when we have these revival services in a, in a little over a month, I'm ready and we're ready to submit to the working of the Holy Spirit. James chapter 5, I'm going to start reading in verse 13. James writes, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. It's maybe a little confusing. The NIV it says let them pray. It's a, it's a singular, it's, a, it's the modern way of, of dealing with a gender-neutral pronoun, right? In the Greek, it's actually a, a singular pronoun. It's let him pray or let her pray. Is anyone happy? Let him or her sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up if they've sinned Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And then James is going to offer us an illustration of a righteous person who, uh, who prayed in faith and saw great results. He says, Elijah was a human being even as we are. So catch that. This illustration isn't about just a hero of the faith. He said, Elijah was a man was a human, just like we were. 
who actually struggled with the same, same things that we struggled with, struggled with a, a lack of doubt and a lack of faith and, and, uh, and, and perhaps even struggled with some, uh, some mental or emotional illnesses. He was a man just like we were, a human even as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced and we've got these last two verses here in James. Now, this is interesting. I'm going to read them in a minute, but it, let me just say it. This is interesting the way that James ends his letter. It's kind of rare for a letter in the New Testament to end so abruptly. There's no final greetings that James offers here. There's no, you know, be well with the Lord, or I'll be there to visit soon, or, or anything like that. He just kind of ends at the end of verse 20, which we're going to read in a minute. And that's, that's unusual, but it's not the only book that does that. Actually, 1 John does the same thing, and curiously enough, both James and, and John, when they, when they end their letters abruptly, they're both dealing with the same matter. 19 and 20, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So what I'm going to suggest today as, as, we, as we've read these last few verses, as James closes his letter, he gives us four marks or four characteristics of faithful churches, of, uh, of churches who are made up of Christians who's got, who God's pleased with and works among and who are faithful to God's design. The first mark is a vibrant, personal faith. Faithful churches are made up of Christians who have a vibrant, personal faith. You see, the tendency can be today um, to, to think that church is, is all about the community, or dare I say, the organization. And, uh, and, and we tend to think about what our church is doing, um, and, and we think it's separate from the people who make it up. Like we have the people who go to Beulah Missionary Church, and then we have Beulah Missionary Church as if she were something other than those of us who call Beulah home. And, and that's true. There's an organizational side to the church. I mean, that, that needs to happen, and, and, uh, and, and, and Beulah Missionary Church is a, an entity as far as the state is concerned, but we lose sight of the fact that the local church is only as strong as the people who make her up. And so James takes a moment here in the first verse that we read, I think to remind us that the fervency of our individual expressions of faith is what fuels, what gives the Spirit permission to do the work he does among us. And he gives us two examples of this. He says, is any one of you sick? And, and the word here isn't necessarily just uh, overcome with cancer or overcome with some kind of other malady that is too big to deal with. It does encompass that. But as we look at other usages through the New Testament, James uses a huge umbrella word here. I mean, this is, this is uh, not just physical maladies, but this is emotional discouragement. This is uh, spiritual weariness. This is the person who just can't figure out what's going on physically, emotionally, spiritually. James says, is, some of, is anyone among you facing a hardship? 
he should pray. She should pray. She should take it to the Heavenly Father. You notice he hasn't yet mentioned the church. James' first concern is if you encounter a problem, your relationship with God, with your Heavenly Father, who says in your time of grace, come before my throne of mercy, your relationship should compel you to take it to the Father. You see, too many times we do just the opposite. And, and, and not that it's bad, for example, when we are dealing with something too big for us to call the church prayer chain and put it on there. We want to do that. And James, in a way, is going to get to that in a minute. But too many times our first knee-jerk reaction is to, to tell everybody else. And we ask everybody else to pray about it, which again isn't bad. But we spend more time asking other people to pray than we spend talking to our Heavenly Father about what's going on, about what we're facing, what we're dealing with. I mean, how can we get so busy asking others to pray that we forget to pray? It is, after all, prayer that allows the Spirit to work in us, to make a difference in us. And there are times when we need other people to come around us, but if we don't start with the connection with our Heavenly Father, given ourselves a handicap in this whole process. And it's not just prayer that he uses as an example. He says, is any one of you happy? He should praise. Again, no mention of the local church body. He says, if things are going well for you, praise God for them. Thank God for them. Celebrate in your relationship with your Heavenly Father. And here again, I think, is another area where sometimes we get the cart before the horse. And you've heard it just like I have, and maybe you even, you've even said it like I have. Like, you know, I come to church, and it's just so... Like, does anybody on the platform even want to be there? Like, they're not even smiling. I mean, you've never, never heard it here. I'm sure in other places. And we come in, and we have this mindset, like, if the person who's standing up here leading us in worship isn't smiling and jumping around the stage and super charismatic, somehow we can't worship. That's bunk. If you can't worship when you come to church, it may be because you can't worship Monday through Saturday. Don't intend to step on your toes and hurt you. But if you have a living, vibrant, active relationship with God Monday through Saturday where when you're happy and things are going well and you have things to celebrate, you have a song to sing, you have a way to express your worship to him through art or singing or writing or cleaning or whatever it is you do. If that's your story Monday through Sunday, you can come in here and you can have no one on the platform and you could still praise God. If you're depending on the people on the platform to set your heart for worship, follower of Christ, child of God, I'm afraid you've missed the mark. Now the praise team would be the first to tell you we're not lazy about that. We constantly, for all the folks on the platform, we constantly say express yourself to God in the way that, that fits your relationship with because while they're leading us in worship, they're, they're, they're leading us as worshipers. And so we want them to be true. We want them to be authentic. We don't do, we, 
we don't do stage performance up here. You're not buying a ticket to come see a show. Okay, so we're not, we're not using this idea as an excuse to be lazy as, as worship leaders. But James says, if you've got a problem, the first thing you've got to do is take it to God. If you've got a good thing going on, the first thing you've got to do is take it to God. Churches that God uses, churches where the Holy Spirit has a freedom to work, are churches made up of people who have a vibrant personal relationship with God. I cannot expect a spiritual vibrancy from my church, excuse me, from my church that I'm unwilling to build and maintain in my personal life. I can't expect more here than I expect in my relationship with my Heavenly Father Monday through Saturday. And so James reminds us, if you want a vibrant church, you need a vibrant relationship with your Heavenly Father. He talks about a second mark of, of, of faithful churches, and that's caring spiritual leaders. Caring spiritual leaders. So, so James says, as he starts this section of his letter, this closing section, he says, are you in trouble? Pray. Are you happy? Praise God. But he doesn't stop there. If you pray and in your relationship and your prayer time with God, you're not finding the resolution, you're not finding the healing, the freedom that you need. James says you should call the elders of the church to come and pray with you and pray over you and anoint you with oil. This word that James uses here, the elders of the church, is an, is an interesting word. Interestingly, it's the, the word that the New Testament uses consistently to describe the leadership of the local church. And it, and it consistently refers to spiritually mature leaders who understand that their role in the local church is to guide and direct the spiritual development of that body of believers. The, the elders in the church aren't, aren't oldest people in the church. They're not, the, they're not just, I mean, hopefully, hopefully the elders, the oldest people in the church are concerned about the spiritual development of the congregation, but, but when the New Testament talks about elders, he's not saying call the gray hairs to come and pray with you. I mean, do we recognize that the biological age doesn't equate to spiritual maturity? He's also not saying call the ones who have been Christians for 50 years. Do we have this experiential understanding that there are believers who have been Christians for decades but who don't have a vibrant personal faith? James says, call those who have been set aside by the congregation who understand their roles and responsibilities to be the spiritual leadership and guidance and development of the congregation. Call them to come and to ply their trade, to do their work. You see, we get this kind of backwards today. I mean, there's, you know, if you find 12 churches, you'll find 13 ways to do it. But, but there's churches who uh, make the pastor the, the primary leader, and that's not the picture that Scripture offers. There's churches who elect board members. That's, that's the terminology that's used in, in our day and age in, in this part of the country. They, they elect board leaders based on their business acumen or based on the wealth they have or what they can give to the church or, or their influence in the community. 
James and the New Testament continue to offer us understanding that it's spiritual leaders that the congregation needs. Spiritual leaders who understand my goal, my role, my responsibility before God and before these people who have appointed me and called me to this position is to care for the spiritual development of the congregation. And part of that we see fleshed out here. James says, when someone's in trouble, the elders should help. They should anoint them with oil. And, and, and scholars are all over the place on what this means. Here at, at Beulah, we actually anoint with oil. We asked just a few weeks ago, we had a man come forward, and he said we wanted to, he wanted to be anointed. And so we did that, and we trusted God for healing. And that's certainly at least part of what James means. Uh, some scholars suggest that perhaps in James's day, uh, when they didn't have medicines like Percocet, which my wife is very grateful for even as I'm preaching, uh, following surgery, when they didn't have things like that, oil was of medicinal usage. And all the essential oilers said amen. There's a few of them. There's, uh, we see oil used in the Old Testament to uh, kind of symbolically set people aside for God's work. This is what happened with the priests and the kings. They were anointed. There was nothing magical about it. It was just a symbol of saying they are now set aside specifically for God's purposes. And there's, a, there's like a pastoral thing here where we anoint with oil kind of maybe to combine these two where we say we are asking the Lord for a special work. We're asking the Holy Spirit, who is sometimes symbolized in the Bible by oil, to have their way with this person. This person confesses they need God as part of the equation. And, and we, as the spiritual leaders of the congregation, we stand before the congregation and we say the same thing. God, we need you. We need you to be part of this. We can't afford to leave you out of it. Spiritual leaders understand that when someone's emotionally weary or physically ill or spiritually weak or relationally struggling, that so many times it's because God's been removed from the equation of what's happening in their lives and spiritual leaders say, we're, taking him, we're bringing him back in. We're reintroducing him to this equation. We're reminding us that we need him. Spiritual leaders say, we can't leave God out of this equation. We're Christians, and our first concern is to submit to God and to follow his directions in dealing with this. Churches where the Holy Spirit is alive and working and active are places where the members that make up the congregation have a personal vibrant faith, where there's, there's uh, spiritual leaders who care about the people and who are doing the work that spiritual leaders are called to do. And the third thing James points to here is what I would call mutual healing confession. Mutual healing confession. Now, various uh, Christian denominations or traditions deal with confession each a little bit differently. For example, in the Roman Catholic tradition, you, you're probably at least vaguely aware of how they deal with confession. Uh, a person goes to a confessional, often held in a booth, or at least so the movies tell us, right? 
and there's a, there's a little sliding wall with a screen between the, the confessor and the priest who's going to hear the confession, and, and you make your confession in, in relative private. If you're, of course, a, a faithful Catholic and active, chances are the priest is going to recognize your voice and know who you are, but there's still this sense of privacy, and I'm confessing only to one person in the presence of God, and, and in the Roman Catholic tradition, they believe the priest has been given the authority to absolve sin, and so often after the confession, the priest will uh, assign some kind of act, act or acts, could be plural, that, that in doing them, the person will find absolution. Often it's a, it's a prayer, or maybe it's to make some kind of restitution if the, if the, you know, the, the sin fits that, allows for that. And, and then they've dealt with confession. In uh, Lutheran or Presbyterian, or Episcopalian, Episcopal churches, uh, they deal with confession at the beginning of worship. And so they'll start their worship services by reading in unison together off the prayer, off the screen, or out of their, their, their booklet or their paper, their bulletin. Um, they'll read a prayer of confession, a general confession that it acknowledges that we're all sinners and that we all need Jesus Christ, and it's a great way to begin worship. And, and the congregation lifts their voice together and, and does that. And then typically the, the priest or the pastor uh, will respond with a, a prayer or a statement of absolution. In our tradition, we call it the Wesleyan Holiness Movement. Um, we, we, we see value in those, uh, those acts of confession, um, but we think that perhaps the, uh, the most meaningful confession is personal confession. Like in the words of James, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. We have a, a sense that general confession is good and we all ought to do more of that. But that there's times when we've committed specific sins against a brother or sister and we need to go and confess that sin to them to be forgiven by them. This is why Jesus says what you bound on earth will be bound in heaven and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. When you forgive some white here, it makes a difference in heaven. When you've, when you've been gossiping, when you've been gossiping, that sin causes divisiveness in the body and it causes strained relationships with bro Christian brothers and sisters. And so we believe you need to go to the person about who you've been gossiping and you need to confess that sin because you're foolish if you think they don't know. And you confess the sin. You confess it to God, absolutely. But you must confess it to your brother or sister. And in the case of gossip, not just to the brother or sister that you gossiped about, but to the people you gossip to because you involve them in your sin. If you called a coworker a vile name in the break room when no one else was around, by all means, apologize that to God. But you got to go to that coworker and you have to confess that you've sinned against them and you need to request their forgiveness. If you embezzled money from the PTO, by all means, ask for God's forgiveness. But you also need to confess to the PTO what you've done. Confess your sins one to another. The goal of confession isn't to it's not to rehash the sin. 
not to flagellate the sinner, not to make it more difficult or kind of rub their nose in what they did. It's not to, to bring out all the dirty details so everyone can revel in how sinful that person is. The goal is healing. The goal is the release of burden, the release of hurt. And so there's some, some guidelines that, uh, that we talk about. First of all, we only confess to the width of the circle of those affected or exposed to our sin. We only, we only confess to the width of the circle of those involved with, exposed to, or aware of our sin. So for example, if we call a coworker in the lunchroom a vile name and there's no one else around, we confess to God, we confess to our coworker, but we don't, we don't have to go confess to the plant manager, right? They weren't involved with it, they weren't exposed to it, we ought to be able to deal with it with our coworker. It doesn't need to go further than that. We only offer enough specifics to demonstrate our understanding of what we've done wrong and our contrition for what we've done So if we've embezzled from the PTO, to use that illustration again, um, we certainly confess to God. We confess to those involved with the PTO, but we don't need to share every detail about how we did it. Not in this confession. There may, be, there may come legal steps where we have to do that. But in this confession, we confess that we stole funds, we stole monies that weren't ours from this fund or that account, and we leave it at that. And then we confess the consequences of our behavior. Because it's not just the behavior that's a problem. It's the consequences of the behavior that so many times Scripture speaks to. And so if it's uh, an issue of gossiping, we confess to the people that were involved with our gossiping, I'm sorry, I said things I shouldn't have said, and that may have impacted your perception of this person. That may have put a, a gap in your relationship with them. It may have undermined their reputation with you, and that was wrong of me. I'm sorry. And then we have to confess to the person that we've been gossiping about the same thing. Here's what I've said about you. Here's those to whom I've said it. And I'm sorry. If you've experienced a gap in your relationship with them, if you feel like your reputation has been undercut, it very well could have been because I sinned in what I did. The goal of mutual confession is healing, is restoration, is reconciliation. There is no reconciliation without the confession of sin. Relationships don't magically grow healthy because we stop talking about what's been done wrong. The goal of confession is always healing. Healing of fractured relationships, healing of strained trust, healing of a life stained by acts of disobedience, and the healing and softening of a heart that's been hardened by sin. The goal is what James describes in these last two verses. Listen as I read these again. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, notice we're talking about fellow believers. My brothers and sisters, wander from the truth, bring them back. He's talking about Christians. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover 
over a multitude of sins. These verses are a description of the last mark of a faithful church. Loving biblical correction. Loving biblical correction. We all share a tendency to deviate, to wander from the path that we're traveling. Now, wandering... It's interesting that James uses this word. It's not just about some kind of radical, I'm done with this, I'm leaving this path, forget it. It's not just about a a renouncing of one's faith, although that certainly would be an act of wondering. But what James describes here is more of, you know, kind of like a a small step in a a slightly different direction. It's It's a small thing. It's not necessarily an extramarital affair or, or uh, abuse or some kind of embezzlement. It's just that, that, that little small action that's just a little to the side of what God would have for us. And of course, the, the scary thing is that, that those little things, they pile up into big things, right? I mean, at first it was just like a second and a third glance at that person who caught our eye across cubicle land. And, 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 and then we wandered a little bit more and it was prolonged daydreaming about this person. And then we wandered just a little bit more and it was private lunches together or you know, private coffee breaks together. And, and then just a little more wandering. It was just a small hug or just a small peck on the cheek. And over the course of time, this, these little itty-bitty steps to the side find us sitting with our spouse, confessing that we've gone too far with someone who wasn't them. James says, if one of you, if a brother or sister, if any of us becomes aware of another who's, who's just taking small steps to the side, who's beginning to wander from what they know is right, ought to bring them back. We need to restore them to the path on which God would have them to walk. Now, what James doesn't do here is tell us how to do that. He just says, if you see it happening and you do something about it, realize what you're going to accomplish. He doesn't tell us how. Thankfully, though, his half-brother did. Back in Matthew, Jesus says this. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along. May be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So this this whole idea of helping a wandering brother or sister, Jesus gives very concrete steps to it. He says, step one, go privately. Go one-on-one. Don't run your small group, I mean, your your mouth to your small group or anyone who's going to listen. Go to the person who you think is wandering, who's taken a misstep, and let love do its best work. The Bible is consistent from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It consistently comes back to this creedal refrain, love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus says if you'll go one-on-one with your brother or sister when they're beginning to wonder, you allow love to do its thing. 
You keep them from being exposed to more embarrassment. Because who of us, when we're extremely embarrassed, is willing to own up and come back? It makes it a whole lot harder. You, you refuse to uh, expose them to shame that they don't need. If you'll go one-on-one and privately, and if you'll, if you'll allow love to do its best work, you can bring that wanderer back. You can, by God's grace, you can find them back on the path they're supposed to wander. They're supposed to walk and not wander from. This is how the Bible continually talks about reconciliation. But if that doesn't work, and and heaven knows sometimes it doesn't, Jesus gives us a second step. Take someone else along. The goal here in step two is now to discern, the person didn't listen to me, so is this a sin issue, or is there a deeper conflict issue here we need to address? You see, truth be told, I think for a lot of us, our tendency is to think, oh, so-and-so's wandering from the path, it's a sin issue. they're, They're ignoring the spirit, they're doing things that are wrong and sinful. And that may be the case, but sometimes it's a conflict issue. Sometimes we get so tied up in knots and sideways with each other that we don't realize that if we can deal with that, the wondering may be solved. And so step two, excuse me, step two helps us to discern that. Is this a sin issue that needs to be confessed? Or is this a conflict issue that, that needs to be owned up to And that's why we take a brother or sister along. Neutral pair of ears that'll say, I don't know, I I think there's some conflict here that that we can work through and resolve and and bring this wandering brother or sister back. But most of us, if I can be honest, won't do this. Because we don't want to hear that we may have a part in it. It's a whole lot easier to point the finger and blame the sinner than to say, maybe because of my lack of caring, or maybe because of what I did, this person started to wander. But Jesus says, let love cover multitude of sins. Be willing to own up to what you did. Take a neutral person, take someone else along. If that doesn't work, this is a long process. This doesn't happen in a course of days, right? This takes time. It's compassion and caring and drawn out. Step three, he says, involve church leaders. The, the goal here is to get spiritual leaders involved who can apply some spiritual um, leverage, let's say, who, who, who can have godly authority applied in a way that maybe the other people involved at this point can't. That's what God has equipped church leaders with, is godly authority that's not of themselves. Step four, if that doesn't work, and after going alone and waiting and waiting and praying and trusting and hoping and, 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 and then taking a new set of neutral ears and making sure that there's nothing else that I need to do, there's not other issues here that we need to address, and, and if it still continues after taking church leaders along and if they do everything they know how to do and there's still no resolution, and Jesus says the church ought to renew their efforts to see the saving work of Jesus Christ happen in that person's life. We often read that last part of this, of Matthew 18, 17, and we think that means excommunicate them, kick them out, have nothing to do with them. Is that the ethic that we see Jesus treating tax collectors and sinners with? Jesus was, fill in the blank, a friend of, of sinners. 
When Jesus says, if all these other steps to bring them back to the path don't work, treat them as you would a, a tax collector or sinner, he's not saying excommunicate them. He's not saying cut them off from the life of the body. He's saying understand that because of their insistence on remaining in this pattern of sin, the salvation of God is clearly not part of who they are. And so work that they'll encounter the saving grace of Jesus Christ. See them for what they are and renew your efforts to see the grace of God applied to their lives. Because if you do that, James says, every step of the way, if you'll do it, you not only save them from eternal death, but you save everybody from a whole desire to give the Holy Spirit freedom to work, or churches where the people say, I'm not going to wait till Sunday morning, I'm not going to wait till May 12th to, to ask the Spirit to work in me. I'm going to do that day in and day out in my personal relationship with God. Churches that are marked by uh, the Holy Spirit doing His work are ones where spiritual leaders care for and carry out God's expectation for the local congregation, where they, uh, they, they, they confess to one another when they fall short, and they're quick to offer forgiveness, where they help people who are wandering from the path to come back, and to experience the grace and mercy and forgiveness of a loving, loving Heavenly Father who gave His Son, so that they could walk the path they need to. to do to call me back on, on path, on Mark? And my guess is that he has some work he wants to do among us as a body to call us back on path. My desire, my hope, my request, my invitation is let's spend the next six or eight weeks asking the Holy Spirit, what can we do to be people of faith, to be a faithful church, so that when you are here working in us during these special services, we don't have to go back to the elementary things, to the things we should have already mastered, but we can be ready for you to take us the next step. And so I'd invite you in your small groups this week or in your daily devotions, use the study guide on the back of these sermon notes and ask the question, is there anywhere where I or where we need to address some issues? that we can do anything the scripture calls us to do. 
It's only because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who, who bore our sins and took our shame that, that we can acknowledge when we've gone off path, that we can see that others are going off path. It's only because of our risen Savior who, who lives ever before the throne of God interceding for us that we can have a vibrant personal relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so, Father, even as we pray and ask for your Spirit's help, ask for you to search us and know us and show us how we continue to grow in you. Even as we do that, Father, we thank you because we know that none of this is possible without the cross of Christ. And so, Father, we do ask, would your spirit search us? And would you know us? And would you see if there's any way in us that isn't pleasing to you? and together we'll bless one another as we're dismissed. For those of you who are guests with us today, uh, I'll pronounce the blessing and then uh, you're invited to say and also to you. And then that way we'll bless one another. May you have a vibrant personal relationship with your Lord and Savior. May we do church the way that the Bible prescribes. And may the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit give you peace. Amen. You are loved. Go with God's grace.